Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 11th, 2022. This is episode 3013, 3013 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to do what I said we might do yesterday. We're going to do it for real. We're going to talk about seed starting. I'm going to talk about all aspects of this uh, and give you a pretty good overview of it and help you decide whether or not it's the right way for you to go. I think you'll find at the end of this that you'll be able to come to a conclusion that there are the vast majority of people who are going to grow a garden and are going to grow things that make sense to start early, this is the right thing to do. However, there probably are some people where it doesn't make, if anything, uh, economic sense. It, you might break even or even uh, take a couple seasons to come back if you are growing a very small amount. But it still might be worth doing for the skill set development. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day today, number one, is JM Bullion. JM Bullion is a great sponsor. Been with us like, I think, nine years now. And I love that I can still reach out to the president of the company, his name's Michael, and say, hey, I got an issue. I haven't had an issue in about seven years that involved a customer uh, as far as not being happy. But what I did have was this year, when the year turned over, something happened and the discount code stopped working for JM Bullion. I heard from like three people in like an hour, the first hour it wasn't working. Hey, hey, it don't work. Emailed Michael. Fifteen minutes later, got an email back. Sorry, there was a, an error because of the year ending out. We fixed it. It works again. If you're going to be buying silver and gold, that's the kind of company you want to buy from, someone that you can reach out to and talk to the top person. You know, I've been asked by several uh, companies over the years to come on board as a sponsor in this silver and gold space. Uh, Monex asked me, and so did Lear Capital. And I asked, can I talk to your president or your CEO? And they said, no. And I said, then no. Because I know what I've got in JM Bullion. Better pricing, free shipping, discounts for my members, And the same silver and gold you get anywhere else. Why would you buy it anywhere but jambullion.com? Next up today, the other precious metal would be copper jacketed lead. You can find that at bulkammo.com. Bulk Ammo is another long-term sponsor. Been with us like 10 years. And their contract just it just ran out, and I just emailed them. They said, yep, we'll take, we want to stay another year with you guys. So they are a hardcore loyal sponsor to the Survival Podcast. They got all the ammo and all the common types available in bulk at great pricing with lightning-fast shipping, and they do a discount for MSV members as well. So when you're going to stock up on ammo, get on over to bulkammo.com. With that, let's go ahead and jump on into today's episode, and we're going to drop in now to the live stream that we did. Remember, if you ever want to be in a live stream like this, the best way to make sure you get a heads up on it is get on our Telegram channel. You can find that information in the notes of today's episode and just about every episode that we've done anytime recently. Well, hi there, folks. Welcome to the live feed for today's podcast. For those of you tuning in For one of the first times that aren't aware that there is a survival podcast because you just found this video or what have you, there is a link in the video notes, and uh, it will take you over to the audio version of the podcast and all the resources and everything that we're going to talk about today. And you'll be able to subscribe to the actual podcast. We're on, you know, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Pocket Cast, we're on Spotify, uh, we're on Pandora, we're on everywhere you can find a podcast, you can find the survival podcast. Been running now for almost 14 years, over 3,000 episodes, and in fact, today's episode is episode 
3,013 we're going to be talking about starting seeds from scratch today. And that's just kind of my lead in that lets people that are coming on to the live stream have a little bit of time to get here before we jump into the meat and potatoes of the show. I do hope you guys enjoy today's show. As we're going through this, uh, if you are on the live feed and you have questions, I may hit here and there on some questions and comments as we go through. However, I usually try to save most of the Q&A and uh, back and forth for after I get done with the main part of the podcast. Uh, and that way it's kind of all at one time in a Q&A section at the end, just like any presentation that you generally sit through. And the way to do that is put your, your comments and questions in all caps, no matter when you do it. If you want me to see it all caps, it makes it a little bit easier for me to pick it out. And if you're on uh, Facebook or Twitter or uh, Odyssey or Float, um, actually, Facebook, I do see. So if you're on Odyssey or Float or Twitter, I do not see your comments in real time. You need to come over either to uh, – well, you need to come over to YouTube because I generally don't really pay much attention to what's going on in Facebook. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, and dig on into this. All right, folks, so today what we're going to be talking about is uh, is starting seeds. That that's That's kind of the subject today, and it's just a really – great time to have that discussion because it is cold. Somebody said here in the comments on the live stream, um, survival tips and other stuff said, hello everyone. It's colder as it's cold as a well digger's ass in the Klondike here in East Texas. Yeah, I, I understand. It's pretty cold here right now. Um, I, I, I know it's like hard to really think about the spring garden season. Everything warming up, the birds chirping, the sun rising, and it just being glorious and beautiful and all that growth of spring coming in. But it'll be here before you know it. And for most of us, we need to be looking at starting our seeds somewhere between a few weeks from now to about Valentine's Day to maybe a couple weeks after that. There's some of you guys in really northern climates. Um, you might even have to extend your pre-start time to get in under your growth cycle and however many uh, days of growth that you have. So this is a good time to talk about it. And what I always like to do when I have this conversation with y'all is I like to start out with the, the way this happens in the wild or in nature. Because we look at starting seeds as being something that has to be done with this incredible skill set and all this love and what have you. And I think we look at nature, we say nature is a harsh mistress, man. You know, I mean, it's got to be hard for those seeds to survive in nature. But if we look at how that happens, if we look at how specifically, you know, when we talk about this, we're mostly talking about annuals or we're talking about plants that are maybe tender perennials, but we grow them as annuals. And so a, 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 a true annual would be something like lettuce, right, um, would be a, a true annual. We have some biannuals. Most of your broccolis, your kales and stuff are actually biannuals. And then we have uh, tender perennials. Uh, peppers are actually a perennial. Most people don't know that because they're not perennial in like 99% of the United States. If you live in a place where it doesn't freeze, peppers will live for five to ten years. So we're 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 generally in a place where we're looking at nature and we're we're trying to emulate that. But when it comes to seed starting, we probably don't think that we should, right? It just because I mean, if you just take seed and just throw it, most of it doesn't grow, right? But the reality is, if we look at 
how the seeds that do grow in nature grow, we, we learn an awful lot about what makes everything work. So you think about nature being this harsh place for this little seed to survive. But imagine you've got our little seed and it pops out of the pot or the flower or whatever it is that that seed was produced in and it lands on the ground somewhere. And instead of lay, landing in this like vacant spot, it lands in a little clump of grass and maybe some animal or human comes along and walks on it and pushes it just a little bit into the soil. And then winter comes and it gets really cold. Well, the seed is not going to really care that it's really cold because it's not going to germinate, right? If it fell late enough in the season that the temperatures had already dropped, it's going to have a very long period to germinate in that cold temperature. And it's just going to basically hold itself all the way until the right time for it to germinate. And it's laying down in this little clump of, of matted bush. And we think of this as really harsh, but when the harsh winds come, and it's a tiny little seed, and, you know, this, this tuft of grass that it's nestled in is five or six inches tall. That's like you being, you know, in the middle of like a pine forest when there's a snowstorm, and you're, you're, you're protected. And when it rains, that grass is going to help hold that moisture, in, or when there's snow melt, it's going to hold that moisture in. And it actually provides this wonderful little microenvironment where the seed's going to grow. And what's happened is as gardeners, you know, when we prepare a garden bed and we put our, our divots in or our furrows or whatever, and we prep everything absolutely as perfectly as we can, we put all our seeds and we get this huge high germination rate, assuming we do everything right for our direct sow stuff. And we think of like, well, obviously, if we just threw seed out, we wouldn't get a garden. Well, you wouldn't. You probably get a lot of things that grew and the ones that grow would be really tenacious seeds, not just because they're survivors, but because they found the perfect spot to grow for them. And that's what we're doing when we do indoor seed starting. And so if we, if we immediately understand that nature is not as harsh as we think, we start to figure out, well, what does that mean about what we need to provide? Well, we need to provide our seeds the right conditions to germinate at the right time. That's the most important thing. That's the thing that nature generally does perfectly because the biological clock is accurate. So we don't want to start seeds right now. We talked about this a little bit yesterday when we decided to do this episode. If we, if we start our seeds right now in most of the country, they're going to outgrow the little pots that we're growing and they're going to get too big. They're going to grow too fast. We also don't want to start our seeds, you know, three months from now when we might as well just start them outside. And, and that's one of the big things to take away from the nature of uh, the, the lesson from nature. If what you're planning can be direct sown outdoors reliably and has enough time from the time it germinates until the end of your growing season to grow and produce for you outside, you're probably, not always, but probably better off direct sowing the seed. Because if you don't ever disturb the roots of a plant, and when it grows, it is able to put down its tap roots and its hair roots exactly the way that it wants to in that environment. It's never going to go through a period of transplant shock, and it's going to tend to do better. So when we talk about starting seeds indoors today, we're not doing this because it's the only way to do things. We're doing it because we want to grow a plant, and for one reason or another, we need to adapt a plant that's outside of our growing season into our growing season. About the only other reason to do this is because there's people that will buy them and you want to sell them. 
We're not going to get into that today. If we're doing it just for ourselves, those are the plants we want to limit to. So I am never, ever going to put cucumber seeds into a little pot or some little cup and start them unless I'm planning on growing them in my hydroponic system or something like that. I'm just starting the plant. If I'm going to grow cucumber or watermelon or cantaloupe in Texas with a 225-day growing season, I'm just going to wait till the soil temperature is right, and I'm going to plant it out into the ground. If I want to grow tomatoes here, I can do that, but I'll get a lot further along by pre-starting them. Same with peppers, etc. And one of the things I've talked about before, and, and you can adapt this to your climate type, you might live in the north where you have a relatively short growing period, maybe only 180 days. And even if, let's say, a pepper or tomato will grow and produce from the soil, you, you're going to limit your total production time seriously if you don't get that six month, six, sorry, six month, six week head start. Or you could be in my situation where if you're far enough in the deep south, you're going to get this period in the summer where it gets so hot that even a well established plant, even if it doesn't suffer, if it doesn't look bad, it's just not going to produce. Like I have peppers everywhere and then the middle of summer comes and then Whatever's on the plant is what you get, and you don't see any more blossoms until about mid-September, and then and then they produce huge flushes a second time. So if I only direct sow my peppers, I'm not going to get that first production. So I just wanted to kind of give you, you know, thinking about nature, thinking about the way nature would do things. There's nothing in nature that puts the plant in a little cup and sets it under an artificial light and gives it a perfect world and then moves it outside six weeks later to give it a head start. That that doesn't exist. And the reality is most of the plants that we do this with, again, we're, coming, we're bringing them in from outside the natural plant, the wild version thereof, doesn't live in our environment. So when you start setting up to seed, start your seeds, I think there's some certain things that you need to really look at out of the gate. Number one, how much do you really want slash need to start? And this is a place where people get themselves into trouble. Uh, you get a hold of a couple seed catalogs. Next thing you know, you've ordered four or five different boxes of seeds, and you have like 150 varieties of seed you want to start. And now we're going to do a six-pack each, and now we're starting 600 plants. Well, let's say that you had pretty decent-sized little garden, little raised beds. Four by eight raised beds, um, and everything you're planting. You're not doing any zucchinis or anything to take up a lot of space. You're doing plants that pretty much can grow one plant per square foot. You got 32 square foot of bed. You got 128 square feet for four beds. If you planted with optimum density perfectly, you could start 128 plants. And maybe you start 140 for the ones that won't make it or will die. And then you would max out your bed space. If all the plants that you were starting all met the criteria for starting indoors, you would start 100 and what, 128 plants. Anybody here really think that fits their description of what they're going to do? So when we start looking at setting up a planting system and a seed starting system, you start to realize with something like a single four foot by two foot flood tray which we're going to talk about more in a bit here. Uh, and people say, well, I need more. I need like five, six, seven layers, man. I got it. No, right? So you could start if you went with six packs, see 72, 144, 288. If they were all in six packs, you could do 288 plants in a four-by-two flood tray. 
it's probably more than most people need to do. If again, if you're selling plants to neighbors and friends and to farmers markets or to some local supply store or something like that, then we can get into a totally different world. And we probably need to be moving into the world of like a heated greenhouse or something at that point. Uh, if we get much bigger than that, but just realize you probably don't need as much space or resources as you think you do. And you don't need to start as many plants as you think you do. When we look at, well, where, and I got a lot of, I put out some stuff this morning on all the social media platforms and I got a lot of questions about, you know, where's the best place to do this? Garage, greenhouse, outside, extra bedroom, et cetera. Guys, you know how that works out, right? It's the standard answer that any good permaculturist gives. It depends. It depends. So first of all, I think that if you have the space, you have the space, you have the resources, you're not going to get in trouble with your significant other for, for having this big honking thing in the house. Um, all things being equal, you're probably best off, especially as a new person to starting seeds, inside your home. Not in a garage. That's not, and if you have a heated garage, that's different. If a heated space inside, protected. Because there's a bunch of things that's not going to happen. Number one is you're not going to have massive temperature swings. Unless like the power goes out in the middle of an ice storm or something like last year, right? Um, you're not going to, you're probably not going to have any pest problems. You're probably not going to have any pest problems at all. You're not going to have gnats, aphids, or you know, any kind of little chewers or pokers or uh, little guys causing problems like that. And you're going to not forget to take care of your stuff, right? And it's just going to be right there so you can find it, you can see it, you can deal with it. Um, the next best thing would probably be going completely opposite to a greenhouse if you have a greenhouse that one way or another can be heated enough um, during the night so that your plants don't freeze and die. And you probably want to use some supplemental heat. We'll get into that in a bit. Either way, especially for germination. But what I have found is I use artificial lights because when I want total control, it's what I have to do. If you gave me some sort of ge geothermal heated greenhouse, uh, a greenhouse with an unlimited, you know, like some people, like when we had a property in West Virginia, I'd had an oil well on it and had unlimited natural gas. Man, you throw a big greenhouse in there and tie into that gas well, and boom, you can heat all you want. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, something like that. The sun is a better source of light than artificial lights. It is. And your plants will tend to do better. Except what happens in winter, guys, as far as the duration of your daylight? It's much shorter. It's a much shorter duration of daylight, right? Um, I remember when I was growing up in Pennsylvania this time of year, like, 4.45 in the in the afternoon, it was pretty much dark out already. Dark to a plant anyway. So it's kind of one of those garages and outdoor shops and things like that. I think they work fairly well. Um, you're probably in most climates going to have to provide some supplemental heat. And one of the ways that we can do that is, so we think day and night. And we get in our circadian rhythm, and this seems like really important to us, right? Plants don't care. All the plant cares is in a 24-hour period, let's say I get 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark, or 14 hours of light and 10 hours of dark. 
And 1410s kind of become my go-to for seed starting. I've gotten the best results with that after experimenting with a bunch of different ratios. And so it is very possible that what you can do then is set your lights to run primarily through the night because they're going to provide some residual heat, and that will aid things as well. Um, as far as lighting, I last time I did this topic, I think it was about two and a half years ago. It was in 2019, around this time of year. And I went through T8s and T4s and, you know, low-end LEDs and high-end LEDs, and I, I don't I don't do that anymore. If you have old shop lights or something, you want to use them, and they've worked before, they'll work again. That's fine. If you're buying lighting today and you're not buying quality, at least consumer-level uh, quality LED lights, you are wasting your money, you are wrong, and you are making a mistake. The light brand that I recommend is made by a company called Barina. Uh, there's links, again, in the audio side of this with everything that I'm talking about today that you can check out. But I don't really care if you buy Barina. We, we've gotten to a point now where anything that's made, especially in China, and these lights are, there's 50 people with a different brand name selling the exact same product, and you can generally look at the product, and you can see this is the same product. That's definitely the case with, like, these consumer-level electronics, things like the mini greenhouse we'll talk about in a bit, all of that stuff. It's it's pretty much all the same. It's probably made in the same place and it's put in a different box with a different name on it. The reason I recommend Barina is I absolutely know they work. I've, I've sold thousands of them as an affiliate, and I've never had a complaint. And I know that if you get a broken one or a busted one or a problem, they're going to fix it. They're going to step up and say, dude, sorry, you got a smash box or whatever. Here's some more. So that's why I'm, I'm big on the Barina brand. But when you look at those lights, that's the type of thing you're looking for. And, and the way I've tried to explain this is a, uh, I think a four pack, no, a six pack of four foot Barina lights today. And that's, that'll do a lot, guys. That's three to a level, two four foot levels. Uh, again, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of plants you can grow with that. Uh, those lights about four years ago, three years ago, one light like that from a manufacturer, one four foot good quality LED, uh, multi-spectrum light, full spectrum light would have cost you around 60 to a hundred dollars, depending on who you bought it from. Today you can buy a six pack of those lights for like 90 bucks. And to me, it just doesn't make any sense anymore to be out buying these, these low end, uh, shop lights and things like that. Like go straight to LEDs and, and just don't even think about anything else. Heating. Um, I think that it probably makes sense unless you have a, a reason not to, to at least during your germination, when you have your little seed trays, use a, use a proper designed heating mat. Uh, a, a mat that is designed to warm seedlings. It, it, it's set to the right temperature. You don't have to play with it. There's no up and down. Don't be monkeying around using things like, uh, you know, heating pads for your back or something like that that cycle on and off and what have you. Um, I, I really recommend that you check out one of my resource links you'll see in the audio is uh, made by a company called Hydrofarm. And it's a Hydrofarm seed starting system. What I'll do, I'll pull it up for you right now so you can take a look at it. And uh, this is this is going to be kind of a go-to if you want to be able to know you're going to get good germination rate, especially with things that are notoriously hard to germinate. 
So I'm pulling that up now for you. And it's just a real simple little 72 cell. And it's, it's kind of a low end seed tray. It's got a humidity dome on it and it comes with a heating mat. And for the price, it is just an excellent setup. And one of the things I wanted to talk about with the, with the artificial heating, you don't need to have this extra warmth all the way through the growth cycle of your seedlings. And you probably, it, it could be actually detrimental to do so. Okay. You need to get that seed to germinate, get its first true leaves on, and then you can move it to a less sheltered environment. And I want you to start thinking about your seedlings the way that we think about hatchling birds. That bird first comes out of the egg and it's in an incubator. Since there's no mommy chicken there with it, you know what you do? Nothing. You leave it in the incubator. It's exactly 99.5 degrees because it's a wet little chicken that just came out of the egg. You don't want him to come out. You let him and his, his brothers and sisters pop out of their eggs and get nice and fluffy and dry. We open the incubator and we move them to a brooder and we put a heat lamp there. And we make sure that they, they can get out of the heat, but they have access to that heat. They're going to spend most of their time in that heat. And about a week into it, you're going to go in and you're going to look in your brooder and you're going to see all your baby chickens when they're not sleeping, they're out partying and running around and having fun and eating and put the food in the water away from the light. They'll go over there and get it and they'll hang out over there and they'll spread out. And when they go to sleep at night, they'll all get in a big clump under the light. And as another week goes by, you'll see even when they're under the light sleeping at night, they're spread out more. And eventually you'll notice that they're in the brooder and they don't really give two shits about the heat lamp anymore unless it gets really cold. And that's kind of like how your seedlings are. As they grow, they require less supplemental warmth, assuming they don't get really cold, right? And we can actually, like, if we realize, hey, it's uh, I'm going to have to keep these plants inside a little longer than I wanted to. I'm not going to be able to put them out when I originally planned. My frost date's getting moved out. A, a cold front's coming in. We can actually lower temperature and slow and, and then reduce lighting frequency. So you'll go from, let's say, 14 hours of light down to like 10 hours of light. And we can slow that growth down a little bit so we don't outgrow our pot and our size that we want before we put those plants out. So those are just some, uh, some thoughts on that. Um, payback on equipment, I'll go into more toward the end. But I just want to say that if you... If you have a place near you where it's like uh, an old school nursery and you can go in and buy six packs of tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that for like $1.99, it's a pretty long payback. It's a pretty long payback. That's, you know, people that, that specialize in this that are, you know, small scale to mid scale commercial operators that can produce a lot of plants really fast and know what they're doing. They've systemized it. They only grow certain varieties that they know do well for them. They know exactly what those varieties need. They've gotten very, very efficient. And you probably won't, you won't save a lot of money by doing this. If you want to grow things that generally you either can't get or when you do get them, you're going to Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, et cetera, and you're buying the Bonnie's cups and you're paying $3 a plant, you, you almost can't lose money doing this. You really can't. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost instantaneous to pay back. If you looked at, let's say, um, you produce a hundred plants at three, three dollars a plant, it's three hundred dollars. If you can't build a system that'll produce a hundred good starts for under three hundred dollars, you, you're, 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 you hate money. 
you're doing you're, you're doing dumb things on purpose, I think, if you can't do that. So the payback's pretty good. I do want to talk a little bit about soil versus hydro day, and I want to talk about things I've learned since the last time we visited on this topic over two years ago. When I discovered hydroponics and I realized how quick and how much root mass I could get and how fast the plants would grow and how big the plants would grow and how stocky the plants would grow and how healthy it would grow, I became kind of addicted to it. And I still think it's a wonderful thing. However, it does have some things that make it a little bit less desirable as far as I'm concerned. If we want to grow our plants up to like a couple inches in size and then set them out or pot them up, man, starting with hydro, especially the Kratky system, is golden, especially with an indoor mini greenhouse on top of it or what have you. It's just absolutely spot on beautiful. If you let the plants get much bigger, what ends up happening is getting the roots out of whatever they've grown and becomes hard. You do a lot of damage to the roots. You get a massive amount of hair root. It takes a little bit more time for that plant to adapt once you put it in the soil, and it makes hardening off a little bit more complicated. There's some ways around that we'll cover in a second, but it's not as simple as just take the pots out of the growth system and put them in a shady area, you know, where it's shady half day and sunny half day for a couple of weeks and water them there and then put them in the garden. Like it, it, it becomes more difficult uh, to do things like that. And then if your system malfunctions or if you're doing Kratky and you don't have an automated refill and it dries to the bone under lights, your little hydro pellets or whatever, they dry out like that and your plants die. There's no, there's no forgiveness factor. And the more soil we have, the more of a battery of hydration we have, the more of a forgiveness factor there is if we make mistakes. And so that's just something that I kind of wanted to bring up. I also wanted to say, like, the indoor greenhouse is one of the greatest things in the world, and it also makes doing, like, garages and shops a lot better, uh, a lot easier, a lot more practical, dealing with the colder temperatures in there. When you have, you know, a two-rack system with three to four lights per layer, and those lights are on for 10, 14 hours, that's a lot of heat. Even with LEDs, it's a lot of heat. If it is trapped in a, a, a greenhouse type configuration, then you, you retain a lot more of the heat. The plants get a lot more rapid growth. Humidity is wonderful for them. They do fantastic. And even when the lights go out, there's a certain amount of residual heat left. And so I, I think that that is, that is one of the best things you can do. I do have some racks that I recommend that come with custom fit little mini greenhouse things that go on top of them. But I, I wanted to point out, if you're building your own rack, if you're using like nylon or plastic shelving that you get at like the box stores for your rack system, uh, if you're using like an NSF wire rack that we'll talk about in a bit, any of those things, you can basically fabricate a mini greenhouse out of cheap painter's plastic. It only needs to last one season. You can buy a, a small package of that stuff for under five bucks. And I would basically do it in pieces and parts. Make the top piece, make the back side, the front side, and the sides. And then remember, they don't have to seal perfectly. We're, we're not building a greenhouse out in the middle of the tundra here. We're putting it in a garage or a shop or whatever. Any amount of holding more humidity and more warmth in will be sufficient and then make some way to open it up. Now, there's some things that I really have learned um, 
things that seem like good ideas that really weren't or things that could be made better with very easy modifications, things that seem like common sense that the common sense was counterintuitive on since we last did this. And one is rack orientation. So I use an NSF rack. Those are, I'll just pull that up right now. Why don't we do that so you guys can see it? And by the way, I have a link to these on Amazon in the show notes today. And I really recommend, the, even though I love it when you support me by using my affiliate links, that you do not buy one of these on Amazon. Uh, unless you just can't find one locally and you're having supply chain issues or something like that and you need to get one, I really put this one in here so you can see it. But they're the, the restaurant-style stainless steel racks with caster wheels. Generally, I found you can get these for way less than 220 bucks. If you're going to use the flood trays that I talk about, I would spend the extra money to get the ones that are two foot deep versus 18 inches deep. The flood trays will support themselves, but the people that I've heard from that have had cracks form in their flood trays, yeah, you guessed it. They, uh, they, they, uh, they use the, the less deep, uh, racks. Um, if you're using a rack like that, and you look and you go, well, it's, you know, it's only two feet to the back of the rack. It, it is really a pain in the ass to maintain, to work on, to check on plants that are in the back row, uh, when you're going across things like that. It's much easier if you can get to both sides of the long dimension of the rack. So when we set a rack up in a building or a room, we have a tendency to take the long dimension against the wall. And that makes all the maintenance harder. If we turn it so the long dimension comes off the wall and we can get to the front or we pull it off the wall far enough, which you pretty much with a four by two, you end up in about the same position uh, because you pull two feet off the wall. Now you're four feet off. You see what I mean, right? So if we go with that long dimension, it does jut out like a peninsula, but working on the system is easier. Since it's easier, you'll do it. So you'll have less losses. You'll have less plants to get shaded out. You'll see problems quicker. You'll take care of things better, et cetera. The other thing I learned is when you go really high in a vertical system. So when I put together my first hydro system in one of those NSF racks, I was intent that I was going to have three levels and I did it and it worked. And my top level was really shallow from the lights. And all I did was grow microgreens up in there until I didn't. I started using it to start plants because it turned out to be a better use for it than using it as a farm. And then the plants on the top grew really fast up into the lights, and they used up all the vertical space. And then maintaining those plants on that top level was a pain in the ass. You had to get a step stool out, so you didn't do it. So I've recently reconfigured that, and I owe you guys a, a video of it. Right now it's just got a bunch of mint plants in it. But I've reconfigured it to two levels using two of the flood trays. And they have a lot more headspace. And that lets us grow those plants out a lot more. And I can still, again, if I was doing six packs, I can do what, uh, 288 plants per level. So it's, it's almost 600 plants that I could do on those two levels. That's way more plants than even I need to start. So I, I really think the orientation and trying to cram too much into a vertical space is probably not worth it. Uh, next up, um, Letting plants go too long in a hydro system, I kind of alluded to this already, it causes some problems. When you get way too much root mass and you're trying to get that out of a net cup or something. So I, I've gone to where if I'm going to do hydro, let's go ahead and get the plant kind of off to a good start. And as soon as those roots really start to show up, 
Let's go ahead and pot that into soil. Now, here's the, the, the interesting thing. When you guys see the new video I'll do this week for you, uh, the way I have the system configured now, basically I have your flood trays, and they do a flood and drain cycle. So they ebb and flow. So water comes in, fills up to a point, holds there for 15 minutes, and then goes drains back down to dry. I could have a plant sitting in there that's a hydroponic plant in one pot, and I could have another pot with soil in it. It's just getting irrigated with fertilized water. So it does both. Why not both like the little girl from the Taco Bell commercial? Um, next, you can lower lights. We're going to talk about some troubleshooting here in a second. And leggy plants is the, like every time I ask this, the number one problem people have. My plants are tall and leggy and they fall over. Lighting is the number one problem for this. You can lower lights, but with these new lights, if you're using the high-quality lights like the Barinas, You can just add more lights. So my new system, since I had three levels and I'm doing two, I now have four lights per level. And the other thing you can do to help prevent the legginess when you're using artificial lights is just run a longer light cycle with the lights on. So if you were to go from 10 hours to 14 hours, you're extending four more hours of light. And you're going to be a lot less likely to have um, legginess. And so... You can set up a system of raise and lower lights. That's generally kind of a pain in the ass, though, in my opinion. And so I prefer just to use more lights and a longer duration of light. And, uh, again, lights make heat, and the plant doesn't care if it's day or night. And when you swap the plant and go outdoors with it, it's not going to be upset with you. It doesn't have, it's not a mammal. Like plants are not mammals or reptiles. Or, they don't have a circadian rhythm the way that we do. Um, they'll have it one day of having a really long day and then they'll just, you know, resync to that as long as we're getting enough light on an, on a 24 hour cycle. And if you're thinking, Hey, you know what, Jack, I know what I'll do. Screw it. Those lights are cheap to run. I'll just leave them on 24 hours a day and then they'll have heat. No, 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 no. Plants do not like that. That is the plants need the on off light cycle, especially when they're coming up as babies. Remember, we're trying to do wherever we can. We're trying to emulate nature. And in any temperate climate, right, when that plant is emerging as a baby plant, the days are going to be relatively short and they're going to get longer each day. If we really wanted to get scientific and some of the people that do this professionally do, uh, you actually, they actually have timing systems that actually start out with less light and then keep extending it to mimic nature. All right. All right. So. Uh, we talked about this yesterday, but I got to do it real quick for people who didn't see. Determining your starting dates. This is really simple. Use almanac.com, link in the, in the notes as well. Um, go there, stick your zip code in, and then it will give you your average last frost date. Then you figure out, well, how long do these plants need to be started? And most plants like this, we need to start between four and six weeks prior to set out. So then you count back from there, you determine your start date, and that's going to be about the time that you start your plants. You might want to leave yourself like one extra week, one extra week in the grow, grow, uh, uh, the grow rack or, or being hardened off or whatever isn't going to hurt your plants. They're not going to get too big in that one week. You know, if it's three weeks, then they're starting to get too big. They're outgrowing. They're getting root shock. They're getting circling roots, et cetera. Um, And then that way, if you end up like, hey, it's going to be March, like my day is March 28th, man. I, I can never forget it. March 28th is our average last frost date. I should be able to put plants in the ground on March 29th. Every once in a while, the weather guesser comes on the thing about, you know, March 25th and says, 
well, we have an Arctic vortex on the way into Texas. It's going to be 14 degrees out or something like that. So if that happens, you get that one last one. You can always kind of have that kind of little bit of buffer, have that extra week uh, to set aside for you. So you're, you're better off with a little more time than a little less time. The other side of it is if you get to a point where your plants are nice, they're looking good, they're nice and stocky the way you want them, and um, you look at your 10-day forecast 10 days before your, your set-out date and nothing even comes close to, 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 to freezing, unless you have, like, that tinkling in the back of your neck that they're going to get us again with a late one, get that stuff in the ground, man. The quicker you get it in the ground, if the weather's right, the better off the plant is. The more time that plant has to grow where it's going to spend its entire life, the better off that plant's going to be. Um, this is the big stuff I wanted to cover with you, though, because these are all the things that I hear from you guys, and I'll take more questions here in about uh, 10 minutes' time on this, but troubleshooting issues. The number one number one and number two things I get, slow or, low ger- or no germination and leggy, right? Though that's... That's 90% of the problems come down to that's what people are worried about. I put the seeds in, they didn't start at all. It, you know, a lot of times even things like, well, it got moldy or whatever. Well, it got moldy because it sat there for two weeks and none of the seeds germinated. So your, your number one and number two issues that cause low or no germination. Number one is insufficient humidity. Humidity and wet are not the same thing. Wet is this, the, the stuff inside this, this cup is coffee. It is wet. If I stick my finger in there, it is wet. It tastes pretty good, too. Humidity would be, in this case, is that coffee still fairly hot? If I hold my hand over the cup and there, I can feel condensation and moisture, there's, there's, there's evaporated water vapor in the air. That's humidity. Those are different things. So either using um, the, the HydroFarm product or something like it with a humidity dome will, or even something like taking a seed flat, getting a great, you know, great big like the two-gallon Ziploc, uh, 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 Ziploc bags, and you can reuse them over and over again so they're super cheap. You can, you can take a two-and-a-half-gallon one of those, the giant ones, and 11 by, uh, 11 by 20 uh, tray slides right in there, or I'm sorry, 1020 tray. Slides right in there, seal it up, and let that act as a humidity dome. And once everything germinates, then take it out and put it into your regular system, things like that. The other thing is heat. And heat, in most instances, is probably your problem. And that's why I wanted to talk about this little guy right here, the E-Tech City uh, Thermal Temperature Gun, because you can learn a lot with one of these guys here. And they, they shoot a little red light like that right there, huh? Blinding you guys, blinded by the light. I can use it to, uh, to torment my fish. My fish, I've got a red tail shark chasing it in my fish tank right now. Um, yeah, they, they like, but it, it, it gives you a lot of information about a lot of things. And one of the things you'll find with this, if you have a seed starting system set up and you kind of take a te- the temperature of the system itself and, you know, it says like 73 degrees. And then you, you take this little red dot here, right? You take that little red dot and you shine that little red dot right on the surface of the soil or whatever media you're using to start your seeds in. It'll say something like 54 degrees. And that's because when we have evaporation, we have temperatures drop. 
That's how that works. When you have, that's why an evaporative cooler, uh, works as an air conditioner. Because when you have water evaporating, you get a cooling effect. So that's where those heating pads come in. And generally some form of supplemental heat will get you a much better germination rate. The other thing is some seeds, for some reason, especially in some climates or some areas, I don't know if it's, I don't know what it is. It could be pressure. It could be the, the ambient humidity where they just don't seem to want to germinate well. You do every, give them everything they want and they don't germinate well. Celery seed hates germinating here. It hates it. But you put a humidity dome on it and I get almost 100%. Conversely, I can do, do a humidity dome with spinach. I don't know what it is. I used to grow spinach in Pennsylvania. I could look at the ground and make spinach grow with my mind. Like it was that easy. Spinach seed just germinates like crap here in Texas. I don't, and it's like a spinach growing. Apparently like Austin is one of the Austin area and the, the urban farms are like some of the biggest spinach producers in the country, uh, is growing spinach in the winter here in Texas. So I don't get it, but I get terrible spinach germination rates. Fortunately, they're a large seed. And this is a lot of, lot of plants. If you have bad germination and you can, the other thing you can do this with is maybe you get a batch that germinates poorly. So, for instance, a year ago, I bought a fairly large pack of just jalapeno MCs to bring some more genetics into my jalapeno line, and they didn't germinate at all. And I was gonna, I was gonna write the company and bitch and say send me new seeds, and I was like, man, I need to get something growing now. I don't have time to wait on this. And so I tried this same trick with those jalapeno seeds. Now I've never had peppers be hard to germinate. It was a batch that was just a, it was kind of a slothful batch of pepper seeds. You take a piece of paper towel, maybe about two or three layers thick, and then you wet it and you squeeze it out really good. So it's damp, but it's not soaking wet. Fold it back out one level, put a bunch of seeds on it, fold that in half, stick that inside a Ziploc bag, and then check one day, two day, three days later. Somewhere in that two to four day period, you should start to sprout. You want to figure out when you see the first little tiny rootlet sticking out of that seed. You want to get it off of there and into where you want it to grow. You don't want to break that rootlet. And the longer that little rootlet gets, especially when you're dropping it in like hydroponic pellets or something, the more likely you are to damage or break that root or get what's called a push out with hydro, which is where you put the seed down in a little, little grow pellet and then the root pushes the plant out and it has like a root sticking halfway out of the damn thing. And you, you can't ever get it back in there most of the time without hurting it. Um, so you get that little tiny rootlet just showing. And if you, you you put a bunch of seeds in there, and a lot of them show a little tiny rootlet, and the rest of them, they don't have a rootlet sticking out yet, but they're fat and they're swelled up, go ahead and plant them. Most of them are going to grow. But humidity dome, heat, plastic bag trick. That's how you deal with your seeds that, that don't want to starve for you. And you know where I put that plastic bag? thing is you take your, take your phone and put like a reminder on it so you don't forget you've done it, so you don't go back there and they're all like, you know, busted roots and stuff. Most of you guys probably have cable TV. You have a cable TV box. It's nice and warm up there. You got circulating air of, of, of the, the exhaust fan. I take my Ziploc bag, put with a Sharpie on there, whatever plant it was, and the date, and I throw it on top of there and check it every other day. And, you know, I, I check it like two days in and then every day until it looks like they're started and get them into the growth system. That's, that's saved my butt on so many things that didn't want to start well for me. Uh, on leggy, again, it's almost always light. More light, longer light, or lower light. If, because I've seen people are really proud of their plants. They have this little plant 
It's like freaking three inches tall. It has one set of true leaves on it, and it's sad. But they're happy because look how tall it is already. You don't want your plants tall. You don't want your plants tall. Let me say it one more time. When you're starting seedlings, you don't want tall. You want, like when I was in high school, I wrestled. And you know who you didn't want to wrestle? You didn't want to wrestle a guy in your weight class that was in good shape that was four inches shorter than you. And it's like like Filipinos and Islanders, they have that stature, right? You don't want to wrestle that guy. They're they're horrible to wrestle. It's like wrestling like yourself and somebody else at the same time because they have a different center of gravity. That's what you want for a plant. You want a Filipino wrestler plant, right? You want a pit bull plant, low center of gravity, tough, mean, bushy, bushed out. So if you start seeing your plants and they seem like they're growing faster up than they should, if you think that, they probably are. They probably are. And you need to get more light on them. Now, there's another thing that can be wrong. There is this belief system that you should not fertilize seedlings. If somebody tells you this, this is what you should say. I really think that you should stop talking to people and stop giving people advice. And certainly stop giving people advice as though you know what you're talking about. Uh, in plants, and especially like in nurseries, and generally this is not family-owned or small-scale or regional, but your big nurseries, your box store nurseries like Home Depot and Lowe's, the quality of advice you get there, and I, and I know you get some good people work there, I get it, but the general quality of advice that you get from people like that is equivalent to going to a box store that sells guns and asking the guy behind the gun counter for advice on what caliber and make of handgun you should buy for concealed carry, right? If you get the right answer, it's not because they know the right answer. Plants use nutrients to grow, okay? And when a plant is 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 stressed in any way, it affects its form of growth, its leaf form, its growth rate, its structure, all of that is affected. So making sure if you're using hydro that you have a good broad spectrum uh, fertilizer, if you're using soil that you're using some sort of a decent organic fertilizer, or like I said, if you're irrigating from the bottom of the flood and drain type situation in soil, there's no reason you can't use basically hydroponic fluid to do that. That's what I do. That way you can do both and you're not going to over fertilize. You're not going to over fertilize your seedlings. You're not going to over fertilize your seedlings. You're not going to over-fertilize your seedlings. The theory is that they won't grow a real aggressive root structure if you give them too much fertility because they're not going to hunt for it. Let's think about this. Let's apply the logic test here. We take a little six-pack or even a four-pack. We have about enough soil that I can hold it in my right fist. How far can that plant actually send roots into that container? Into that, it's not going to, it's not going to create roots in excess of the size of that container. Okay. And it's not going to put like, if you're not going to have this plant that grows up big and beautiful and pull it out and there's one little root in there. That's not a thing. This is terrible advice. No one should ever listen to this advice. And anybody who gives you that advice not to fertilize should be ignored. And I'm going to expand that a little bit too. There's another place where this advice is given. Never fertilize peppers, man. Never for, you know what? Again, don't listen to those people. They have no business giving you advice. I'm sorry to sound like this, 
But it troubles me when people tell me shit like this. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, can you over-fertilize a pepper? Yes. I have found one confirmed situation where a farmer over-fertilized peppers, and they got very low yield on their fruit. And in that instance, they had come up with this huge surplus of worm castings, and I think they put something down like eight inches of worm castings in, in like a, a quarter acre uh, of peppers. Eight inches across the whole thing. And there was so much that they had this huge nitrogen flush, and these plants just got enormous, and they didn't yield very well. Um, that's not generally the case, though. Uh, you have to go way out of your way. Fertility is good for plants, including baby plants. Imagine if somebody told you, you know what? You know that baby infant you have? If you really want it to grow, you shouldn't give it mother's milk or formula, right? You should give it water. Because if you don't, if you give it too much nutrient, it has no incentive to grow. You, you see the logical fallacy in that, right? That's what people are saying when they say not to fertilize plants. So that's another reason you can end up with leggy, poor color. You're going to go to nutrient, too much water, or you're going to be dealing with um, not enough light. Those are your big things to look at. Mold and slime and dampening off, that's almost ex extensively too much water. Um, you're too wet. And remember, humidity and wet are not the same thing. Humidity is the amount of water and moisture in the air. Wet is how wet the roots are. Plants don't generally like to have really wet roots because what happens is you get low oxygen. And when you get low oxygen, then you get anaerobic, and then you get the conditions that are perfect for molds and funguses and things like that and, and algae and, and what have you. So when you tell people that, they say, well, you, you, you've done things like cracky hydro and recirculating hydro and all. Well, how's that work? Well, in hydro, we're using a mechanical, uh, a mechanical adaptation to create oxygen. If we're using cracky, we create an air gap. So there's plenty of oxygen in the air gap. And then we, the, the, the deeper roots are just down in the water for moisture only. And the upper roots are gathering, uh, humidity and oxygen. If we are using kind of like a flood and drain, well, when that floods, yeah, the roots are wet, but when it drains, they're getting huge amount of inflow of fresh air and oxygen. So that negates that. And that's part of why it works so well and why you almost never have any mold or algae or anything like that. I've been asked by people about my hydroponic systems. How do you deal with algae? I don't. I don't worry about it. If I get a little bit of algae, I just ignore it. I don't care. It's not important. Uh, maybe once in a while I'll dump a, a, a bottle of a 69 cent bottle of hydrogen peroxide into the reservoir or whatever. It's good for the plants. It's good for the system and it knocks down algae. But the reality is when I use my flood trays, I'm, when I, on my irrigation cycle, the water comes in, it irrigates or it delivers nutrient and liquid if it's, if it's a hydro plant and then it drains to the bottom dry. And if they're in, when the bottom's dry and in that cycle where it's not running and right now the system I'm running now, I'm only doing 15 minutes of water on every three hours. So it completely dries up before it runs a cycle again, so the algae never gets a chance to go. If I'm doing something like deep water culture, then you're putting some sort of cover and you're dropping plants through holes, and there's not enough light to the water to have an algae problem. But if you're getting mold, slime, green, white, anything like that on your, on your start pots, no matter how you're doing it, hydro, conventional, doesn't matter, it's too wet. It's too wet. Um, Tons of people tell me that they have trouble with peppers. They can be finicky. 
But the number one problem with peppers, again, ends up being leggy. Peppers want a lot of light when they're young. So, again, get those lights, lights low on them. And if you have trouble with germination, use the plastic bag trick. Uh, I also was asked this morning, how many seeds per cell? So I've, let's say I've got a six pack and I've got little, I've got soil or I got hydro pellets or whatever in each one. How many do you do one? Do you do two? What do you, what are you planting? And how easy is it to do? If they're large, easy to plant seeds, I do two in every cell. If they're small, little bitty seeds, you know, seeds are cheap, right? And if you save your own, they're free. And so I do a little pinch in each one. It's just the time I would take to like, Okay, I want two lettuce seeds, one, two, instead of going dump, 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 dump. It's just not worth it to me. And so I do a little pinch in each one, and when the plants come up, I look at it, and I pick out the ones that look like they're the healthiest, which often are not the tallest, right? The little butch one and then the little leggy one, cut the little leggy one off, and I don't pull. I don't pull them out, and I don't pinch them off. Because it's too easy when they're young and fragile like that to damage. I have a little pair of scissors, and I just snip off. And a lot of times, if it's something that won't necessarily be damaged by having two plants, and I put a pinch in there, there's like four of them, I'll, I'll snip off two or three, and I'll leave two. So lettuces, especially when I'm doing lettuces that are going to grow in hydro systems, I let three or four per, per, per pellet grow. Unless one seems to like start to be negatively affected, I might trim that one out. But I do a pinch to each one. I do that with peppers. I do that with tomatoes, et cetera. The only time I get kind of stingy with, like, tomatoes is, like, some of the varieties are pretty expensive per seed. Like, some of the newer, rare varieties. I don't grow a lot of those, but occasionally I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll get down to, like, two seeds per each one. Uh, but generally, I just put a pinch of seed in. Uh, next was, what about gnats and mites and other bugs? Well, this is why I like growing indoors. You have very little problem with insects indoors. If you get gnats, you probably have an overall larger problem. If you're doing greenhouse or like an outdoor area or um, like a cold frame for your or a mini greenhouse or anything like that outside, the you know the pests you get during this time of year in that situation as long as they're insects, are really easy to control. So you can either buy insecticidal soap or basically you take a spray bottle, you put about four drops of dishwasher soap in it, you know, hopefully some sort of organic natural brand, but whatever you use will work. You fill it up with water and you mist your plants. And, and that does a real good job of knocking back the, the type of pests you generally get. The exception and where you might have to, and I don't have a good answer for this because I haven't had to deal with it, so I haven't formulated a solution, is snails. Snails and slugs, a little bit of a mist from uh, soapy water. They don't, they don't like it, but it doesn't make them go away and it doesn't make them die. So if anybody has solutions for that when you're starting, if you get snails or slugs or something in there, uh, let us know. And I know somebody's going to say, you know, you have a Bill Mollison's famous thing, you don't have a slug problem, you have a duck deficiency, but you can't keep ducks in your greenhouse when you're starting plants uh, where they have access to your plants because they'll eat your plants. So, um, and someone here says they use a root drench for gnats, Margaret. If you could uh, put in there, and I'll say it for the audio people once I see it, what do you mean by root drench? What do you drench them in, and how do you do it? That would be an interesting thing to find out. I have had very little problem with this, though. And 
I think it's just that the insects are just not that active that time of year. And I do most of this either indoors or in a greenhouse or in the garage. So there's just not enough uh, there to be a problem. Um, I've also been asked, you know, as far as like containers for starting, what about solo cups? Are they bad? Are they good? Are they indifferent? Uh, I think they're incredibly cost effective. The regular red solo cups, like we all went to bush parties and drank out of when we were kids and shit. They're, they're awesome. They're awesome. And you can probably get two or three seasons out of them before you throw them away. And you can buy like a giant package of them at like Costco for something like eight bucks. I, they're great. What I do with mine is I drill holes in them and you can usually set about 10 in a stack and take just a regular drill and a regular drill bit and just drill holes in the bottom. Okay. But what I've found makes them work even better is to drill some holes in the side. About an inch up from the bottom, you get better airflow. The dirt's not going to fall out. Don't worry about it. It'll be okay. Plus, if you're doing a flood and drain, you get a lot better infiltration of the, of the water into watering from the bottom. And watering from the bottom, if you have the option, is my preferred way to go here. Um, I have had great luck with them. I'm using them right now for cloning some rare mint plants that I have in that system. I'll do a video for you this week. And I'll show you uh, what I mean. I, um, where was I? I, oh, on the solo cups. That's what it was. I have never done this, uh, but I bet it works better than a drill bit. And I found you need a nice sharp drill bit to get a good start in the, the solo cups because they're so soft. They don't have a lot of resistance to push against, so you need a good fresh drill bit to get a nice drill hole through them. Uh, with tiny bits, it works real well, but you, you want kind of like a quarter-inch uh, drill bit size for enough exchange of oxygen and water into the system with your bottom irrigation with them or drainage out if you're watering from above. What works really well, though, and I've seen several people do it on YouTube, is to use a soldering iron. I just, I don't solder very much, so I don't have any, I have a soldering iron somewhere, but I don't know where it is. Um, but what they do, let the soldering iron get hot, and it's about a, a standard soldering iron is about a quarter inch in diameter, and they just melt through the cups. James M is saying use a laser. I think you need a serious laser, man, if you're, you're gonna be melting cups. That's, I guess if you have it for other things. Um, I haven't seen anything on the root drench yet. I have, have somebody here saying, uh, that cinnamon for slugs works well. That might work. You can try that if you have that problem. But the solo cups definitely consider if you have a soldering iron and if you check, if you go like solo cup, uh, soldering iron, plant starting and search for that on YouTube, you'll probably find somebody doing it. It seems to work really well and it makes sense that it would. Um, on, on irrigation, I'm a big fan. If you can water from the bottom. My favorite way to do that is by using flood trays. And this is, this will also go under things that I've learned since I started or in the last couple of years. Um, I built my system using deep flood trays and they work. They also take an awful lot of water to fill up to the point where they start watering the plants. What I have on the screen right now is a shallow flood tray. And these are back in stock. You can see the last time I bought one was in 2019. It's right there. Um, they're made by a company called Botanicare. 60 bucks, I think they're worth it. Again, you can do uh, four, ten. Each one of these sections here will hold a 10, 20 tray. 
That's 72 cells in a six-pack. I think it's 72 cells. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, if you want to. But that's an awful lot of plants. That's two foot by four foot. And what I like about these for those metal racks that I showed you earlier is they have back on the back side of them, there's a channel. And that's where the water flows in and out during a, a ebb and flow cycle, where the water comes up into the system and then drains back out. We do that by placing two bulkheads right down here. One, one, we put the pump and we pump up through that bulkhead and we leave it flush with the bottom. And the second bulkhead, that's our overflow. So the water flows in, fills up to a certain level, and then it starts overflowing that overflow stack and goes back down into our reservoir. And once it does that for a, a, a time cycle and the, the pump shuts off, so it runs for 15 minutes and maybe it shuts off for two hours or three hours or four hours, however long you want it to. The water then stops going over the overflow and goes back down through the pump from the flush bulkhead and the tank, the pan drains completely dry to the bottom. And the way these shallow ones are designed, they drain really, really efficiently because the back channel that overhangs the backside of the rack is actually a little bit lower and it's sloped like a, like a slide that a kid goes down. And if I was building this system today, Instead of buying one of these to do microgreens in and two of the deep trays, I would buy these. And when I do that video, this is going to make a lot of sense. And, and the reason it, it's going to make a lot of sense is you're going to see that one of the reasons I changed the configuration was so I could go to um, kind of a, a hefty or uh, whatever they call it, like a heavy-duty garbage can, so that my reservoir was much taller because you lose a lot of fluid when you're running the cycle to get that tray to fill high enough to actually irrigate or bring nutrient to your plants because you're filling the bottom of the tray and all of those channels that are designed to cause it to drain first. When you're using these shallow trays, you get a, you can have a lot less of a reservoir and get things to work out well. Uh, the other side is, be, and I'll show you when I do the video later this week, but that channel actually hangs off the back of the shelf and it makes everything fit nice and flush, and you don't deal with some of the other issues that the, the larger trays have. And if you've used both of these trays, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyway, I don't know exactly how you would rig something up not using a designed product. And they make those flood and drain trays in 2 by 2 and 4 by 2 both. I guess you could rig something up by using something like... Um, like concrete mixing trays or some other system. But to me, now that those things are back to 60 bucks and in stock, I, I think that I don't know that you could basically build anything quite so good. I will tell you that I'm looking at them now. There's only two left in stock. So if you want one, you better get one. Uh, but I'm sure they'll come in stock again. Of course, we keep having uh, supply chain shortages, but that's 60 bucks and that includes shipping. Uh, they're pretty awesome. And if you have a hydroponic store around you, uh, they, they probably have flood trays. And, and when, once you have that, then you can go to a timer based system. You're not misting from above. You're not overspraying. You're bringing water in and letting water come out. And then you put a timer on there and then you can't mess it up. You just have to make sure your reservoir stays still. And I'm pretty big on the fact that if something can go wrong, it probably will. And if you can, Make a mistake sooner or later, you probably will. And if the mistake that you're going to make has to do with apathy, 
or being tired or getting distracted, you're really likely to do it. And so if you don't automate your irrigation, it's almost inevitable that at some point you're going to have a situation where you go a day where you should have watered and you didn't. You have all this work into these plants that are all doing beautiful and you go upstairs and they all go and they're all just laying flat. And, and I've had it happen. And a lot of times you water it and most of the plants come back and they look okay. They will never have the potential they did before you damaged them that way. That is not what you ever want to happen to your seedlings. So definitely use timers. I have some timers I recommend. They're in the uh, notes uh, as well. Um, I also was asked a lot about where do I get my seed, uh, my trays? I get them on Amazon. I just just showed that. They're, uh, they'll be in the, uh, the resource section or you can go back and rewind the video. Um, but that's where I get them. But I would also tell you again, When you get into ordering things on Amazon, sometimes stuff gets stupid expensive. Sometimes deals go away, et cetera. Just search your local area for a hydroponics store, someone that does hydroponics. And, and that's going to probably be your best way to get flood trays because they're big and bulky. So they're a pain in the ass to ship one of. But your stores like that, they don't buy one. They buy a pallet of them. So you're going to keep your, your cost. Because even when it says free shipping, We know how that works, right? They're burying the cost in, into the situation. Um, but I've been asked about, can you top your seedlings? Because you want bushy plants. It works really good with mint. You probably can't mess mint up anyway. It works really good with mint, though. You you know, I, I even have done it with mint where I'm propagating like a larger pot of mint. And not only do I top it, I then stick the tops. And you end up this really bushy, multi-stemmed, wonderful mint plant. My understanding is that it can work well with peppers. It's never worked well for me. Every time I've pruned a pepper when it's that young, I've come to regret it. Now, I have done it with when you get a pepper and it's two foot tall and it's getting a little leggy and it's in the ground and it's its final place it's going to grow and you take six inches off of it like you're pruning a bush. That's worked fantastic for me. I almost always prune my peppers Remember I said, like, you get flush in spring, then your blossoms are gone. You, you get whatever peppers that have already set. You have your darth of winter, and then you go into fall, and in fall it explodes. In fall, not really fall, like at the beginning of fall, like beginning of September, I generally go out with a pair of pruners, and I prune about four inches off of almost all of my pepper uh, branches, no matter what they look like. And you get a lot more regrowth, and then you get a lot more blossoms, and you get a lot more peppers. I have not had luck. Maybe some of you guys have there in the live stream. I have not had luck pruning back starts ever. And I, I've gotten to the point where I just don't do it anymore. Um, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit here at the end about the final cost-benefit analysis. And if you have questions for me or comments you want me to comment on, it would be a good idea now to go ahead and start dropping them into the comment section. The final cost-benefit analysis. You are not necessarily going to save money doing this. Most of you would, but not necessarily everybody would. And here's, again, what I was going to say, if you can go, if you can go buy your plants in six packs for two bucks a six pack, you're going to probably come close to breaking even. Maybe you'll come ahead in a season or two, right? If you are, if you're going to grow a couple small beds and you're going to put in four tomato plants and four pepper plants and the rest you can direct sow your seed, this probably isn't for you. It probably isn't. 
economically. However, that person's in a really good situation to do this. Set up a small system. Do a two-by-two flood tray. You know, uh, just one of them. Put in freaking four two-foot lights, right? Give it all the light that it wants. Get the, get the bulkheads. Uh, get the little pump. Get the timer. Set it all up. Because here's what happens. Everything goes great. You grew your plants this year. You learned a skill. You put them in the ground. It doesn't work. You're not out that much money. You buy what failed and you put it in the ground and then you, you tool up and you get that entry level point where you start out. Well, now what do you have? Well, when you're not starting seeds with it, you have hydroponic indoor system. Now you can grow your lettuce and your cilantro and stuff like that that doesn't like the heat in, in the, in the summer indoors. And in the middle of winter, you can grow lettuces. And so now you have a, a multitasker. And now if you wanted to go from a single two by two, a two by two tray to two levels, just buy another tray and install another level and a couple valves and a couple bulkheads and your system expands almost infinitely. So now you've got the skill set and you have other things that you can do with it. And I think that's, that's incredibly valuable. If you are going to do something like, you know, I grow broccoli every year. And when I can get broccoli in the six packs, I don't mind paying $1.99 for, for six broccoli plants. It doesn't bother me at all. When, when you're going to Home Depot and Lowe's, you're paying $2.99 for one broccoli plant. I can buy a whole head of organic broccoli for less than that. This doesn't make any sense. So when I'm going to plant like two dozen broccoli plants a year, right there, you know, $100 invested in a system like this, even $150, you're pretty close to like that alone is going to pay for it. Then you start your peppers and your tomatoes. If you're going to be starting somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 plants a year that you would otherwise buy, one to two seasons tops, it's all paid for. And then if you start just thinking a little bit and saying, hey, what about what about selling some to my neighbors and my friends and stuff like that? Um, you can real quick make the money back, right? Because what one of the things you can do is, you know, go to some of these pretty seed catalogs. Pick out some really cool stuff that you can't buy at Home Depot and Lowe's. Start that, and, you know, you could sell those plants for two, three bucks a plant. People don't mind paying that when they're, because most of your friends and neighbors will buy plants from you. They're not going to want to buy a flat. They're going to want to buy two tomatoes and two peppers or something like that. Well, that's 12 bucks. That's 12 bucks. Like, it doesn't take long for one of these systems to pay for itself. Uh, do you use the reflectors that come with your lights? Don asks. I do. I don't know how important they are. But what she's talking about, guys, is the uh, Barina lights are long, skinny lights. They kind of look like a like a fluorescent fixture, but they're LEDs. And they have these two fins that slide on both sides that help reflect the light down. They take like 10 seconds to put in. So, yes, I, I do use them. Uh, thoughts. My wife was concerned about how much extra watering that needs to be done after planting seedlings daily versus, uh, root hog or dye. I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know what root hog or dye means. I, 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 I really don't know. Like, water's pretty cheap. I'm not sure. If you can clear up that question for me a little bit, uh, I'll try coming back to it. Uh, start Goji indoors in Colorado zone 5B. I would. Um, I do think Goji can handle zone five winners once established. 
So it probably will perennialize. Uh, if not, you can definitely grow goji in pots and it will do fairly well for you. And if you're starting goji from seed, it can be hard. And what I would say is if you can buy goji plants somewhere, you're probably better off buying goji plants. They're not that expensive, what have you. Um, I have not done well getting goji to germinate. However, once goji plants are growing, they're so easy to propagate. I don't see any reason to suffer through their seed problems. And if you just, in the spring, when you get your green growth, your softwood cuttings, you want to wait till the, the, the new growth, your new shoots coming off of your limbs are two to three inches at least long, and they're still green. But when you take one and you bend it, it snaps. You don't want it to, like, just flop over. You want it to kind of, like, snap but stay together. When they're like that, you don't need any special anything. You can literally take a solo cup full of potting soil that's wet, stick a green stem into it, put it in the shade, and in a week it'll root. And you can make as many of them as you want. And they're actually pretty expensive. They're a great thing to start. They're not really the kind of thing we're talking about today. So, And then uh, Packrat says, we might start this year with a garden in some distance from our home. What about seeds? Same situation, Central Tennessee. I don't really understand. The question again, what about seeds? I, I, in some distance from your home, I, I'm, I'm not really sure what you're asking me, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're saying, I have no idea. I have no idea unless you're asking me for variety suggestions. I, I have no idea what you mean there. We won't be there every day to water outside and every, will everything die? I think, oh, okay. I get you. So what you're saying is if I, if I do starts and I put them out into my garden, Will they be less able to survive not being regularly watered? I guess is what you're asking. Not really. Not really. I mean, in the end, you know, with the climate you're in, again, if you're, if you're talking about a plant that simply won't have enough time to grow, if you don't start it indoors, then, then it won't make it anyway. And what do you think is going to do better? dealing with a little bit of water stress, a little bit of not having enough irrigation, a plant with a well-established root system that's been transplanted in with loving care or a brand new seedling with one tiny root hair going down. So I think it'll actually lessen that concern. And then my other thing would be, you know, it's not hard to automate irrigation for a garden. It's really not. So you might want to consider that as well because you know, you're probably going to have a problem otherwise. Then. And in your climate in Tennessee, you're probably not going to have that much of an issue with that anyway. You get plenty of rainfall. there. Um, when you first set those plants out, you really want to do a good job of irrigation uh, initially as well. Do we have anything else from anybody in the chat that I can answer? If you're going to answer, ask me a question, I really appreciate the formula I've given you over the years, which is, Ask your question in a single sentence so that I understand what you're asking me. But if you have to give me details, give me details that are relevant to the question um, so that I'm clear what you're asking so I can do my best job for you guys answering you. Um, anyway, I really advise you guys to consider getting involved with this. I think this is a skill set that we really need to bring back to America. The thumbnail for today's, I borrowed and changed a little bit, a quote that's famous by a gentleman is a gorilla gardener in, uh, 
in, in Los Angeles named Ron Finley. He famously said, growing your own food is like printing your own money. And what I changed that today to, the, to be is that growing your own food is a legal way to print your own money. There's a lot of things we can do that the end result has a monetary value if somebody will buy it. But if is the biggest two-letter word in the English language. We can go out and make all kinds of wood projects or all types of things that people do as hobbyist things, making knives, what have you. And you can build a side hustle business, whatever. You can sell that stuff, maybe. We're all going to eat every day. We're all going to eat every day, or most days anyway. And if we don't eat, we die. This is a necessity. And there's there's basically two ways to procure food. You either grow it or harvest it for yourself. So if I go out and shoot a deer, or I go out and pick blackberries, or I grow lettuce, like all of that is in some way that I self-harvested that food. Or I can take my money that I've invested my life force in some other thing for it, and I can go buy it. And that's not bad. Uh, that's part of our economy, and it's an important part of our economy. But if I do that, the money that I had, I don't have anymore. And in the way things work today, it's probably not the case that the guy that grew my food has it. He has a little tiny piece of it, and then the rest of my money spread out against this great big giant supply chain. Right. I've got, I've got to pay the farmer. I got to pay his labor. I got to pay the trucker that brought the lettuce to the warehouse. And then I got to pay the warehouse. And then I got to pay the trucker that brought the, the, the food from the warehouse to the grocery store. And then we got to pay for the lights to go on in the grocery store and the produce got to stock it. And then a cash register person to, to ring it up. So you can see why the farmer doesn't make, um, a, a lot of money anymore. Right. But I'm at a considerable amount of money so that I can, you know, survive, so that I can feed myself. And I am all for buying plants when you're getting started as a gardener. I actually recommend it because if you've never gardened, you've never grown a garden before, and we look at, okay, this is my first year growing a garden. So I'm going to go out and I'm either going to build raised beds or I'm going to do in-the-ground beds, uh, double digs. I'm going to do something. Container, whatever, pick a form. Okay, setting those beds up, that's a skill set. Then I'm going to have to deal with fertility. So I'm, I'm either going to compost or I'm going to buy uh, fertility aids or whatever, and I'm going to incorporate that. Okay, that's a skill set. Then as the plants are growing, I'm going to have to learn about things like diseases and pests. And I'm going to have to deal with taking care of my plants and figuring out what does and doesn't work for me in my environment and in my climate, and that will change over time as my soil improves. Well, that's a skill set. Then I'm going to have to deal with harvest and preservation and use. Well, those are all three more skill sets. That's a lot of skill sets for somebody that's never done any of this before. And if you start out with plants that are sick or weak from the very beginning because you're not good at starting them yet, then the odds that you're going to have failure go up and the odds that you're going to get, you know, upset and, and uh, unmotivated and what have you go up. But if we take the approach of I'm going to work on at least learning how to garden and I'm going to outsource this seed starting thing that Jack just spent an hour and 15 minutes talking about, then maybe that works better. 
And if we go to a direct sew model and things like that, and 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 really, I, I really recommend guys that you pick one of these up because these these uh, I got to remember some of you guys are on the audio these these temperature guns. It, it's it's often the case that I'll talk to somebody with a garden locally, and um, when I do that, they'll tell me, "Well, I, I tried direct planting my plants, and and uh, they, they I didn't get any germination." And I'm like, well, what'd you plant? It'll be something, you know, beets or something, something really easy. And you go over, you look at their garden and you go, dude, um, you have no mulch. It, well, I water really good. Yeah, I, I understand. But the, you know, how deep is that seed in the ground? You know, and it's like a, the, the plant, the package that a quarter inch deep and you know, the sun's out. It's the middle of the day. It's still spring here, but it gets really, really warm. And maybe the, the ambient temperature is 89 degrees. And you take this little gun and you, you know, you point it right at their, uh, their soil where they planted those seeds. And it says 115 degrees. Because it's unshaded, it's unmulched, the surface is dry, and the sun is beating on it. Guys, that seed's not going to germinate. And so one of these will help you with finding things like that. It'll help you with, like, some of the things you can do with this. This is the item of the day today, by the way. I don't usually do this on the, on the uh, video stream. But like things you can do with this, like today I woke up and it was 29 degrees outside. And as I've done many times, I started walking around my property and I started just shooting different things. And what I'm looking for, things that are a little bit colder and things that are a little bit warmer. Places that are like warm spots, places that are a little like frost pockets, etc. Places where things are a little bit more sheltered. And these work really well, again, troubleshooting your seed starting systems as well. When you're getting no germination and you think you, you, well, it's 75 degrees in the house and you test the soil temperature or the, uh, the media temperature of the place you're growing the seed, it says 52 degrees. That seed doesn't know it's 52 or it's 75 degrees in the house. That seed is 52 degrees. So the temperature for the seed is 52 degrees. Um, and, and that will go a long way towards solving a lot of problems. I think that's about all the questions we have with some questions about. Uh, LED, do I still use LED grow lights? Yeah, Barinas, and we already covered that. It's in the video. You can rewind. And, uh, about an hour from now, when the audio podcast goes live, you can go look that up. Somebody said something about using aspirin. I have never really used aspirin, uh, in seed starting solution. He says, wonderful for warding off fungal diseases in tomatoes. Uh, maybe I'll try that this year. I've, I have not ever done that. I, I, I'm not sure exactly why that would work, but it might. I mean, um, if you look at it this way, it might even have to do just with healthier root. And, and a lot of times, a lot of these things, like this is where you get into like germ theory and terrain theory when it comes to diseases, right? And we, which we can apply to human beings as well. And there's purists in both models. And I think both of those positions are pretty flawed logically. And, and the most common thing that we use to describe terrain versus germ theory to explain it is a fish tank. And the germ theory is if the fish are sick, put antibiotics or some other medication in and kill the pathogen. And that's germ theory. The germ is the problem. And then the other theory, which is terrain theory, is clean the fish tank. Do a water change, clean the tank, and all the fish will get better. Now, anybody that's ever, you know, a lot of people use that analogy that I can tell by the way they use that analogy have never kept fish. Anybody that's ever kept fish, and you end up with fin rot or some sort of fungal infection, or you end up with something like ick or some other parasitic infection, you know that you address both sides. You use 
whatever medication or treatment that's necessary, like something like it could simply increase salinity, so salt. And then we also clean the tank. So we address the pathogen and the terrain both because both have impacts. And it is the case that healthier organisms survive greater amounts of stress. And so that's where the terrain theorist says, well, look, see, people don't actually get sick from viruses or bacteria or whatever. They, they get sick because their immune system's weak. You can have perfectly healthy organisms exposed with enough of a pathogen and they'll get sick and or die or become stressed. Maybe they'll survive versus fail. Now, how would that relate to something like aspirin and why it might actually really help tomatoes fight fungal illness without actually directly attacking the fungus itself. Because I'm not sure that's really the case. And I've never had fungus be an issue in tomato starts. Never had that. So uh, the person that dropped that little hint there about uh, fungus, do you mean when they're in the start phase? Or do you mean the total duration, like fighting off things like late or early blight or for CML or something like that? Because that's very interesting to me if it actually would help with that. And I'll tell you why it might. It may simply massively increase the, the, the root mass in the tomato by encouraging it at early growth. Well, how would that work? Aspirin comes from white willow. You know what willow is? A natural rooting hormone. If you're doing like cut and stick, and you're rooting things, and you have a willow tree, and you go out and you get the young buds of the willow when they're first coming out, and you macerate them up and make a paste, and you apply that to your, your stems, you, it's, it works almost as good as commercial rooting hormone, which is actually a pretty toxic acid. So that might be why it's, it's working. And, and uh, James says it's a long-lasting response. And I know James. James has given some good advice over the years in this place. So if he says it's long-lasting, I'm going to try it. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to work out for me because I have 32 gallons of irrigation fluid. Um, I don't know how much aspirin I need to include with that. But I'm wondering if just when I do my tomato starts, then if I could just put like a uh, a quarter of an aspirin tablet in each tomato cell or something like that, or a little bit little instead of doing it in the water, if I if I did it on on the surface and let it permeate into uh, the system over time, because otherwise I guess I'm dropping a freaking bottle of aspirin into a 32-gallon trash can. That doesn't seem like the way to go. Uh, and Mark says, maybe tomato issues are from low calcium. Trust me, boy, it's not, buddy, it's not here. Uh, we don't have low calcium problems here. If anything, we have probably more calcium than we need. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that, that can be the case, too. Uh, but the reality is with tomatoes, especially in southern climates, where we don't get the very, very hard freezes, the molds and funguses that attack the tomatoes survive through the winter, where most of it gets fairly wiped out in your northern climates. And so this actually wasn't a problem in North Texas until about 15 years ago. And there was a massive shipment of tomatoes that came into Texas and especially this part of Texas and all the way down into Austin and even like North San Antonio area now is rife with these blights that really were not a problem until about 15 years, 20 years ago. And uh, they just, we've never, you know, and I thought last year when we got that, that cold snap, but it just wasn't a long enough duration. Uh, we still have quite a bit of it here. Anyway, guys, I appreciate this one. Uh, audio version will go out. All the resources are in. There's got to be a good 20 links 
uh, in today. And I appreciate all of y'all for being with me today. James says he tossed a few pills in the blender for aspirin. Email me, James, and let me know, like, how much reservoir are you dropping that into, though? With that, guys, take care. And uh, we will catch up with you tomorrow with a great interview with Kat from Anarchapoco. Well, we do have things wrapped up now. Uh, appreciate you guys tuning in today. The item of the day today from tspass.com, of course, is the eTech City uh, infrared thermometer. And, uh, you know, I meant everything that I said about it during the episode today. But I'll, I'll throw in that there's this is an incredible value. A tool like this used to be really, really expensive, and some of them still are. Uh, in my write-up, I mentioned that when I first got one of these, I had some work done on my HVAC system, and a, a tech came in, and I noticed he had a thermal gun similar to mine, and it was made by a company called Fluke. Now, some of y'all know I used to be the regional sales vice president of the Northeastern United States for Fluke Networks. So when I see their equipment, I'm, I'm always interested in it, and I asked him about it. He said, yeah, they're about 200 bucks." And I said, really? And I said, well, I just bought this one for $27. And he said, yeah, you know, we're pros. We have to use, like, top-end equipment. I said, okay, so he... He shot it at the, the vent where the air was coming out of the vent, and uh, I, I took a temperature reading with mine, and we were within one degree of each other. So I don't know how much precision you're really looking for, but I think within one degree is, is valid. And there are a lot of cool things that you can do with these. When I'm heating up a skillet, and I'm going to do a saute, and I want to do a high-temperature saute, and I want that skillet up to about 350 degrees, I don't think the skillet is 350 degrees. I know the skillet's 350 degrees. When I'm making small batch meat and I want to go ahead and pitch my yeast and I need the temperature of the, the, the wort to be under 110 degrees, I don't think it's under 110 degrees. I know it's 110 degrees or less, and I don't have to stick something in it and contaminate it to do that because I can just shoot a little light through the thing. When I go around and I want to know what is the temperature of my aquatic system, and should I feed my fish right now or not, Uh, and it's been warm out for a while, but is the water tank? I don't think I know. When I go out to my big rain catchment tanks and I want to know how much water they're holding, all I do is point the little dot and start going down the tank, and when I get to the point where the water level is, there's an abrupt temperature change, and I know exactly how much water is in that tank. I can keep going. This is one of those tools. You have no idea. You have no idea. How much you'll use it until you have it. Tim Toolman Cook today saw that I posted this on social media, and he said, you know, a cool thing for that is when you have a frozen pipe, but it's not frozen solid, there's a frozen spot in it, you can find the block by just shooting the pipe until you find the block in it. Never thought of that, but now I know. It can tell me the temperature of my fish tanks that are indoors. It, like I said during the episode, I go outside when we have really hot days and really cold days, and I look for microclimates. Does this wall that faces south really hold heat overnight? And if so, what gain can I expect? So what can I grow here? Or what do I not want to grow here? Boom. Instant answer. $27. bucks. you will use it over and over and over again. Again, it's one of those tools you have no idea how valuable it is and how much it will do for you until you get one. And you know what else it's good for? It's good for playing with cats. Because it makes that little red dot, and uh, I, I use it to tease my cats. And the other day, I had ducks running by the w the window, and I shot it through the window on the ground and put a dot in front of the duck. The one duck chased it, and the other duck pulled up short like it was going to get killed if it ran into it, freaked out, and ran the other way. 
That was entertaining enough to be worth the 27 bucks and everything is gravy. Check it out. And remember, it's not just the item of the day. If you're going to buy something online and you will go to tspaz.com first, T-S-P-A-Z.com first, and start your shopping there, you'll help us out no matter what you buy. I hope this one went well. It felt a little clunky for me. There was a couple things that went wrong on the other on, on the second machine, the one you guys can't see when I'm doing the podcast, and it threw me off a bit. And when you're doing a live stream, you can't pause and get your thoughts back together. So I hope today's episode wasn't too clunky. If you have questions that we did not answer in this episode about seed starting, send them to me. We can either work them in as segments on a, on a feedback show. If there's enough questions, we can do a whole episode dedicated to answering your questions about starting seeds indoors, in greenhouses, etc. What to start, what not to start, etc. This, again, I think is one of those skill sets that we need to bring back to America Growing your own food really is legally printing your own money. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares.